I've read this before, but everyone here who has raised a child or has recently babysit a grandchild knows that one of the first words children learn is the word mine. So some years ago, I came across this little piece. It was called Property Laws of a Toddler. I love the subtitle. It's Evidences of Original Sin. Here are the top 10 property laws of a toddler. Number one, if I like it, it's mine. Number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Number three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. Number four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Number five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Number six, if I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. Number seven, if it looks just like mine, it's mine. Number eight, if I saw it first, it's mine. Number nine, if you are playing with it and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. And number 10, if it's broken, it's yours. (laughs) It starts early. It seems innate to our stuffing to be enamored with stuff. I thought about that recently as I read an article about William Randolph Hearst. Some of you may have been to California and visited what is now the museum, the Hearst Castle. Actually, several different lodgings. William Randolph Hearst loved stuff. He collected stuff from all over the world and put them in his castle. I mean, when I say stuff, I mean like 3,500-year-old Egyptian statues. Hand-carved ceilings from medieval Europe. Tapestries from ancient times. He had a Roman font brought over and put beside his swimming pool. Some of the greatest works of art in history. He had to build a castle of a 90,000 square feet to hold all his stuff. He collected stuff for 88 years. He was a stuffaholic. And then he died. Rather short-sighted, don't you think? And now thousands of people every year go out to California and walk through his house and they say, wow, he sure did have a lot of stuff. But no amount of stuff is going to stop you from dying. And then what? And that, I think, was the message of one of the most amazing stories Jesus ever told. We're studying these stories that are unique to the gospel of Luke. And what's so unique about them is you read these characters and you have to get to the end of the story to decide. Are they good or bad or ugly? And this one particularly is going to give us a lot of stuff to think about. I want us to read it in just a moment. But first, before we get there, you need to know that Jesus sees stuff through a different lens. And that's one thing that constantly frustrated his critics. It wasn't just his view of sinners. It was his view of stuff. He was constantly turning upside down the prevailing value system. Remember last week we read these verses and they set up the story we're about to read in chapter 16. The Pharisees who loved money. Now remember that. They loved money. They built a theology That justified loving money. And so they sneered at Jesus. But he said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. 
What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Jesus says, I see stuff in a completely different way. He lived in a day when people thought prosperity was proof of piety. If you had a lot of stuff, it proved God was on your side. And he turned that upside down. Look at these verses. Chapter 6, he says, Blessed are the poor, for yours is, not will be someday when you die. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Or in chapter 18, when the rich young ruler leaves sad, it says that Jesus replied, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The poor have it now. It's hard for the rich to get there. Or in chapter 9, Jesus said, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit or lose his very self? Jesus says, You people love stuff so much that you think and do some crazy stuff. One of the clearest examples I saw of this recently was just last month. Maybe you saw out in California a woman named Elsie Poncher wanted to raise some capital to, to pay off her home. You know how she did it? She sold her husband's crypt. Her husband, back in the 50s, had been friends with Joe DiMaggio. When DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe divorced, he no longer planned to have his remains put in the crypt above hers. She died in 1962. Richard got the crypt. That's where his remains are. Elsie said, I'll remove his remains. I'll put them over in mine, and I'll just be cremated. And I will auction off the crypt above the remains of Marilyn Monroe. And so she did. And someone bought it for $4.6 million. So that they can put their dead body on top of dust of a once famous person. That's crazy stuff. Death, you see, is the great equalizer. And no amount of stuff can change that. But I did not say that eternity is the equalizer. No, death is an equalizer. But Jesus did not teach there's equity in eternity. And so he tells this story that gives us a lot of stuff to think about. It starts in verse 19 of chapter 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple... And fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Let me stop a second. They knew what he was saying. In that day, there was this linen that was made in Egypt that only the very rich could buy. It was basically underwear. This guy spends more in his underwear than most people spend to survive. This guy is stinking rich. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table even the dogs came and licked his sores the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side the rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, 
have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tongue of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, They will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Just a quick side point. A little while later, a man named Lazarus will get raised from the dead. And Jesus' critics still won't believe. What a story. And Jesus deliberately puts some contrast he wants you to notice in this story. You've got one man who's licked by dogs. One man licked by flames. You've got one man who just wants some crumbs. And another man that just wants a drop of water. You've got one man who's locked out by a gate. And another man who's kept out by a gulf. And what's particularly significant is one man is given a name. And the other man is just described almost as if to suggest he never lived up to what it meant to be a human being. Now you've got to understand, this is a culture that says race and privilege prove God's favor. This man was a Jew. He said, Father Abraham. And he was rich. And if you are Jewish and if you're rich, that's supposed to be your get into heaven card. Everybody knows that. This is some crazy stuff. Jesus never mentions any great law breaking in this man's life. He didn't cheat on his wife. He didn't steal from people. As far as he knew, we know he was uh, fastidious to observe the rituals of Jewish faith. He went to synagogue. He had a copy of Torah on his bedstand. No, the stuff of his sin was the sinful use of of his stuff now before we go any further i got to deal with a problem some of you aren't listening because you don't think you're rich some years ago i came across this little piece by william boyce he said dear lord i've been rereading the record of the rich young man and it's obviously wrong choice but it set me thinking no matter how much wealth he had he could not ride in the car have any surgery Turn on a light, buy penicillin, watch TV, wash dishes in running water, type a letter, mow a lawn, fly in an airplane, sleep on an inner spring mattress, or talk on the phone. If he was rich, then what am I? If when you leave today you have a home to go to, if you have a car, I don't care what kind of shape it's in, if sometime today you can turn on a faucet and drink safe water, If you can go somewhere today and take the clothes you're wearing off and you got some others to put on. If you have a hobby. Then you're in the top 1 or 2% of people on the earth right now. 
this story is for you. I want to tell you three things this guy never saw. He never saw first the opportunity of treasure. Now he knew there was a beggar at his gate because he knew his name. And by the way, Lazarus' poverty wasn't the rich man's fault. But it was his God-provided opportunity. Because God gives his blessings to us that he might give them through us. But some of us, we get blessed by God. And then instead of becoming a channel, we become a dam. And we even create theologies to justify that we're blocking up all this flow of blessings. You can just hear what the rich man said. He might be contagious. He'll just misuse it. He's under God's judgment. You get what you reap, you know. You reap what you sow. Some of you have pastures and you've got ponds. And the water from the stream or the creek flows into the pond. The water's clear and pure. But it can start to grow algae and get dirty and polluted. Why? If that spillway on the other end gets blocked. You know to keep your water pure, you've got to not just have the water coming in, you've got to have the water flowing out. Same thing with your heart. If you block up the spillway, if you hoard instead of help, something polluted starts to remain in the heart. Jesus is teaching some new stuff here. His very first sermon, he announced good news to the poor. And he said to people, repent and hear the good news because the kingdom of God is at hand. And listen, folks, when Jesus said repent, he didn't say what a lot of us hear. He didn't say stop cussing and stop going to R-rated movies. It wasn't so much a rebuke as it was an invitation. He was saying, I am creating a totally new way to do living. I'm bringing in a totally new kingdom. I'm bringing in what to earth how it is in heaven. I want you to come join me. I want you to come be a part of this upside down movement of people that are bringing in the reign of God. And the early Christians got it. One of the first things we know about the early church is their view of stuff. They didn't think anything was their own. If you were a Christian and you didn't have any stuff, someone walk up and say, I got extra stuff. You can have some of my stuff. That's how they lived. But this rich man never saw that. Because he had a gate in his way. That's the second thing. He never saw his responsibility to his neighbor. You know, I I realized something this week studying this text I hadn't noticed before. But I have traveled in a lot of third world countries where there's just abject poverty. And I realized When you go to a third world country, the surest sign of a rich family is a gate. They have gates. And what's the purpose of a gate? It's to keep people out. But there's another problem with a gate. It keeps people in. It kept that rich man isolated from his true purpose as a human being you know in the bible eating never just stands for food 
It always stands for fellowship and for community. And when Lazarus desired crumbs from the table, he was, he was desiring to be included as a part of the family. But the good thing about gates is that you can keep people away that you don't want to be at your table. This rich man desired no connection to people like Lazarus, and he had the money to satisfy his desire. Isn't it ironic, then, that in the next life, they both got what they wanted in this life? Lazarus got eternal fellowship, and the rich man got eternal isolation. But even the flames didn't warm his heart toward his neighbor. He says to Abraham, send Lazarus. He still looks at Lazarus like his servant, not his equal. The reason he's in hell is because hell is still in him. He All he can care about is his act and his agenda and his stuff. And he's still treating Lazarus like he's just stuff. We can do that, you know. We can learn not to see the people we want to ignore. I have a memory that to this day haunts me. It was many years ago. I was in another country, a third world country, and I was there to preach and bring good news. But I had an afternoon off, and so what did I do? What does everybody do when they go overseas? They go out to look for stuff. Because you have to come home and say, hey, look at all this cool stuff I brought from this country I was in. So I was out in the afternoon looking for stuff, and I'm walking down the sidewalk, and I don't know, I think it was just the Spirit of God, I picked up my foot, and something caused me to stop right here, about a foot off the ground, and I looked down, and right under me were the legs of a beggar. I almost stepped on a human being, because I was so focused on looking for stuff. And this story says if we're not seeing people, we're not hearing God. That's Jesus' third point that he never saw God's priority in Scripture. This is really interesting to me. The rich man goes from ordering Lazarus to ordering Abraham. Well, send someone to warn my brothers. He's arguing with Abraham, which, by the way, is don't ever argue with the big A. That's just not where you want to go. He says, send somebody to warn my brothers. Abraham says they've already been warned. God has made his concern for the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed very clear in his word. Why do you think it says they laid Lazarus at his gate? Because they knew he had the resources to do what the Old Testament clearly stipulated he was supposed to do. Look, for example, at Deuteronomy 15, where uh, Moses is saying, when you go into this new land, there's going to be poor people there. He says, give generously to him. And do so with a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Now stop, just let that sink in for a second. We're talking about the land of milk and honey. We're talking about the promised land. 
And God says, there will always be poor people in it. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. Did you know there are over 2,000 verses in your Bible that talk about justice and poverty? How can you miss it? Unless you just don't want to see it. Now, the Bible does not condemn the rich. In fact, Abraham was one of the wealthiest man in the Bible. This guy was not condemned because he was rich. He was condemned because he was just rich. That when his life was over, all you could say about him as you walked past his house was, He sure did have a lot of stuff. He never did any good stuff with his stuff. And Jesus is saying, you can do better. You can live better than that. I thought, how can we apply this? And so I came up with something. I've never tried this before. I just need you to work with me right here. We love small groups here. Right now, I need four small group leaders to come down to the front. Just trust me on this. You're going to be glad you did. I need four small group leaders to join me down. Somebody stand up. Be bold. Someone have some faith here. All right, here comes a great man who's a leader. Here comes John as a leader. Oh, I got some great leaders. I just need four, guys. We got the first four coming. All right. Here we go. I asked and got permission this week. I took it out of youth budget because <laughs> they're gone. I got coupons for $1,000. And you'll notice on the card it says, for the person at your gate, I want to give you guys $1,000 each. I want you to get with your small group. I want you to pray. And I want you to come up with something awesome and creative and profound and spirit-filled to do for some Lazarus in your life or Lazaruses. Lazarai, whatever the plural is. <laughs> and in three months, because in December, we're going to ask you to get back before the church, and we're going to tell the church how God used you and your group to do something for somebody at the gate. Okay? You guys can do that. I'm proud of you. All right. Now, I want you to pray about them, because they're going to inspire us with some cool stories here in a couple of months. Here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. We've got to see ourselves as entrusted, not entitled. I told you that little word mind that we learned when we were babies, it's a strong illusion. It is an illusion, but it's strong. And it it doesn't just convince us that we ought to hold on to our stuff, but it convinces us that after all, we're entitled to our stuff. We deserve. Our stuff. If other people don't have stuff, that's too bad. But I deserve mine. And that kind of thinking is what creates that great gulf in our hearts. And I've learned there's only one thing that can bridge a gulf. And it's a cross. Because at the cross, we are all needy. At the cross, we are all 
beggars. All of us. And when I remember how unentitled I am to the grace of God, it helps me get my stuff together. It's one reason why every week I need to come to Jesus' table. And it's the reason why every day you need to keep your eyes open for the person you can invite to join us there. I finished it. We could go reading a great book called The Hole in the Gospel by Richard Stearns. Richard Stearns is now president of World Vision, probably one of the, the greatest Christian organizations in the world today to do something about poverty and uh, disease. He was a very successful businessman. In fact, at the time of his appointment, he was the president of the Linux China Company. And he took an enormous cut in pay and moved his whole family to Seattle to be president of this Christian ministry. And it was hard on the family to get used to the change. He said he's been there a few months and he's in a six-year-old minivan with his 17-year-old son, Andy. And up next to them at a stoplight pulls this Jaguar. Just like the one the company gave him to drive before he changed jobs. He said his son looked at him and said, Dad, I guess those days are gone, aren't they? He said, yeah, Andy, I think those days are gone. Then Andy said something. Now, listen to his choice of words. It says something about our culture. His son said, Dad, do you think you'll ever get back in the game for one more kill? And Richard said, Andy, for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm in the real game. I'm in God's game. Preacher, you've given me a lot of stuff to think about. No, I haven't. God has. He's given you a lot of stuff to think about. So think well. And so, Father, I pray now in Jesus' name that you would allow the words of Jesus to penetrate all the defenses we've taught ourselves to put up. It's not just the rich man who has a gate. But may the Spirit penetrate every artificial barrier so that the message of Jesus can shape and form who we really become. We pray this for His glory. Amen. As we sing this next song, I'm going to invite anyone that would like to give their life to Jesus to come and be baptized. Let me say again, Jesus never called anybody just to accept a set of beliefs. 
He called people to come live a radical new way. A way that's turning the world upside down. A way that is showing the world how it's going to be when heaven comes to earth. I'd like to invite you to be part of that way and be baptized today. We're going to sing a song that reminds us that we are responsible for each other. Let's stand up. Let's praise. standing please we're going to be dismissed in just a moment remember to pray for our teenagers they'll be coming back and to be here about the time of the end of the uh, second service and you can pick them up then we're still enjoying our study of the life of abraham on wednesday nights at seven o'clock and this wednesday night we're going to study probably the most important verse in the bible i'm not sure you can understand jesus if you don't understand this story in the life of abraham you need to come and hear it
Uh, don't forget about our small groups. Be sure and get in one. And don't forget the performance uh, tonight. The Broadway music is going to be a blessing to you. I'm glad you're here. Uh, I'm going to ask, uh, as we sing this next song to close, if our prayer team would come down to the front. And if you would like someone to pray with you this morning, as soon as we're through with this song, the service is dismissed, and you can come, and uh, they will meet you and pray with you. I'll be over here with Charlie. If you would like to learn how to join this church, just meet with Charlie and myself as soon as we're dismissed. Let's sing this song, and then we'll close. <laughs>